Let's look at Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9, we're going to be looking through verses 1 through 28, and I'm going to ask that you just stand right up. We're going to do a, uh, the reading of God's Word, and then we're going to get right into our text uh, this morning. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 28, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version uh, of the Bible so you can follow along. It says, And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God uh, after it has come with power. Now after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what is this rising from the dead and what it might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come, uh, first must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the other nine disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And the father said, From childhood. And it often has cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you again for this opportunity to open your word. Lord, in it we receive the words that bring eternal life. In it we see your glory revealed. Father, I pray that we would see your glory. That we would see your majesty this morning. That, Lord, we would see it in your written word. We would see it in your creation. We would see it in the lives of one another as we uh, radiate the glory of Jesus Christ through our lives. Lord, I pray for uh, the helpless and hopeless situations that some of us in this church face. And, Lord, that we would feel 
and, and sense your presence amongst us. That we would know that while it seems impossible to us in some of the situations we find ourselves in, that nothing is impossible with you. And nothing is impossible when faith uh, is uh, brought to bear uh, on a situation. So, Father, uh, lead us and teach us today, we ask, uh, through the gift of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been in this series that we've entitled Man at Work, looking at the Son of Man as he works and uh, serves and as he reaches out uh, to the lost as uh, the servant, and we see uh, just from a couple weeks ago that Jesus is now turning his attention to the cross. More and more he's talking about the cost of discipleship, and over the past couple weeks we have encountered uh, some of the most powerful words that Jesus would share during his earthly ministry. The call for those to deny themselves and to take up their cross uh, today, uh, we move from the words, if you will, to an event, an experience that takes place, probably ranking uh, only second to uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord comes the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Now, this event would follow Jesus' announcement to the cross and the way of discipleship, both of what it would cost us as disciples and the blessing that would come as a result. And Jesus would ask three disciples to witness this transfiguration, while the other nine are called to carry on the ministry that Jesus had given, and in that was the authority over evil spirits. And what we're going to see in our text this morning is after tasting uh, the incredible thrill of victory, we're going to see that the nine disciples had fallen into the society's belief at that time that casting out evil spirits came from an exorcist, if you will, technique of using the right words to tap into divine power. And little did they know that prayer would be the thing that would help them in their time of need. From a mountaintop experience to the agony of defeat and humiliation, we see this in a passage that takes us again from the top down to the bottom. Might I add this morning that what I think that shows us is a microcosm of the Christian life. I'm not sure about your walk with God, but what I've learned about my walk is it's not this, nor is it this, but it's this. I go from one mountaintop experience, whether I've heard a sermon uh, preached or uh, been a part of the power of God in my life, only to turn around and fall to the sin that I vowed that I wouldn't fall to that night before or that uh, time that I heard that message. How many of us have come from a, a retreat or a, a conference or a Sunday morning worship service excited? We've seen the glory of God. We've experienced and tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And we've resolved in our heart that we would be dependent on Him only to turn around the next day and find ourselves totally dependent on self. This is what the disciples see and what they begin to experience is what I would like to call the growing pains of the Christian life. Now we see growing pains go on in our lives. We see it in the physical realm. As uh, my boys are growing, every once in a while they'll say, my, my arm hurts, my, my legs hurt. What, what's going on? I haven't done anything to them. And we tell them those are probably growing pains. The, the growing of the bones as you get taller. The stretching of the tendons and the ligaments as, as your body continues to develop. But we see it in relationships. The growing pains of a, a boyfriend and girlfriend that start working through some of the harder issues uh, that go far beyond a first and second date. And the beginning to see of, of hearts being brought together. There's, there's pains that come as a result of it. We see it emotionally as we put our trust and faith in, in certain relationships or a certain people and, and they falter, they fall and, and our hearts are broken and our trust is, is uh, set by the wayside and as a result of that, struggles come. Within the Christian realm, there is growing pains as well. I can't tell you how many times I have felt the sting of those growing pains in my own life, where God has molded me and, and put me in the fire and, and made me to be who he wants me to be. 
And sadly, and depending on how you look at it, those growing pains will go on for the rest of your life. And God is at work in us. And so we see the disciples, and I want you to know, as much as we give a hard time to the disciples, I'm thankful for these guys. I'm thankful that God chose 12 really not all that perfect individuals. Because in those 12 very unperfect people, I see myself. And I see the patience of God in their lives, just as I see the patience of God in my own life. And as they're growing, as they're struggling through the growing pains of who is this Jesus and what is he all about, I begin to understand and and know that those are many of the same questions that I struggle with each and every day. They're going to go from a mountaintop experience this morning, as we do many times, to the cellar. And we need to see what God wants to teach us in that. Jesus has given the words that have life and the power to combat any illness and trouble. But now Jesus is talking some pretty crazy stuff, and the disciples are really starting to wonder about him. And they're beginning to wonder what they've gotten themselves into. Jesus is doing that to us as well this morning. He's calling us to a life to follow him, to pursue him. And right when we start getting into the habit of doing that, Jesus calls us to something crazy. He calls us to something that seems out of the ordinary. And we begin to ask, what have I gotten myself into? What has Jesus really called me to? But if we want to grow in our faith and we want to be able to take on the challenges that Jesus brings our way, we need to grow in our faith. And that involves, first of all, getting a glimpse of his glory. Getting a glimpse of his glory. Notice verse 1 with me this morning. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now verse 1 is one of those verses that finds itself um, as a way of debate, if you will, in small groups and Bible studies everywhere. Now as a result of this, um, what will happen is, is we'll miss out on the importance of what the text is talking about and deal with the things of speculation. I want to just spend a moment just to calm some of your hearts because it seems, to th- it seems to say that the disciples aren't going to die until Jesus comes back. And many unbelieving skeptics would say, well, hey, all the disciples are dead and Jesus isn't back. You see, Jesus is wrong. Jesus was wrong in saying he would come back. And that shows Jesus to be a farce. And that's just not the case. What we see happening in the life of uh, the disciples is Jesus telling them about an event. And what would that event be? If it's not a second coming, what could it be? Some scholars believe that Jesus is alluding to his resurrection or Pentecost. But the struggle with that is that the resurrection and Pentecost would be seen by 11 of the 12 disciples. Now, Jesus could be alluding to Judas not being there. Of course, Judas would end his life after the uh, arrest and betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Still other commentaries believe that what Jesus is talking about is the destruction of Israel. That would happen some 37 years later when the Romans would come in and there would not be a stone on top of another. Jerusalem would be completely annihilated. All of those are okay, But the one that seems plain to me, and quite frankly, when we come to passages of Scripture where we don't have an answer, usually the plainest answer is probably the preferred answer. The preferred answer of what Jesus is saying when he says that some of you who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power, the answer is in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Now, wouldn't that be some of the disciples? Three of the twelve would see Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, and they would see the kingdom of God come in power. And so I think that what Jesus is talking about is the transfiguration that we're going to address this morning. Now, it's evident from Mark's text that Jesus knew that the transfiguration was coming. It wasn't something that he was surprised about. In fact, he had announced it six full days before it happened. And we know that he led them to the mountain, probably Mount Hermon, 
where it would take place. Now, Mount Hermon would be an ideal place because it's one of the highest mountains in the region, and it would be a great opportunity and place for God to reveal himself. Now, I would be remiss not to tell you that God seems to have a a real love for the mountains. I'm sorry for all of you plain dwellers here in Illinois. God doesn't do much in in the cornfields of, if you will, Illinois. He likes more of Colorado and other places like that. And I want to just give you a survey of that. God does a lot of things on mountains. If you remember in Genesis, uh, Abraham climbs Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. It'd be on the top of Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus that God would give the law to Moses. It'd be on Mount Carmel where Elijah would highlight the awesome power of God before the prophets of Baal. It would be on a mountain that Jesus would share his most recorded sermon. You know the sermon, the Sermon of the Valley, right? No, the Sermon on the Mount. It would be on the Mount of Olives, 40 days after Christ's resurrection, that he would take his disciples and he would ascend to heaven. And we are told that it will be on that Mount of Olives where his foot will touch and he will enter into his kingdom at the point of his second coming. Now the mountain that he's talking about, whatever mountain it may be, Jesus would take his three disciples as Luke records of this, and he says that they would go and pray. Now Matthew would record these events as well, but we want to focus primarily on what Mark tells us about this passage. Now what an incredible impact it must have been to be called amongst the twelve to go and pray, and Jesus had done this often that he would have them now see something that they wouldn't be able to tell anybody until after the resurrection that would have a radical uh, effect in their life. I wonder if John, one of the three that saw this occurrence, was speaking about this very moment when he says in John 1.14 that he says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And he says, and we have seen his glory. When did John see the glory? I believe what John is talking about here is the glory of the transfiguration. We saw him in all of his glory, in all of his majesty. We've seen the glory of the one and only. It seems that Peter would would remember this event. Of course, we're getting it through Peter's uh, words to Mark in our text this morning, but I want you to turn for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And as you're turning to 2 Peter, I want you to think about what what might be going on in your own mind as you partake in this glorious event and occurrence in your own life. What might your response have been? This is what Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. This is what he says some years later. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Notice what he says. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's saying, hey, I was here. Now the struggle that takes place with Peter and John, John says, we have beheld his glory, we've seen it. And and Peter says, we were there on that mountain, it was amazing Here's the problem, and this is the problem we run into as we deal with this text. We get a verse and a half about this glorious occurrence. Have you ever been a part of something so wonderful and so awesome that when someone says, what did you see, words can't describe it? Well, I I don't know, and all these adjectives start coming out, great, wonderful, awesome, glorious, all of these things, but yet none of them seem to be able to, uh, to articulate that. Most people who say they've been to the Grand Canyon, their first view of that incredible canyon is one that leaves people speechless. And yet what we see here is a glimpse of what 
God wants us to see and what we will see in eternity. I want you to notice a couple things as we explore this. The first thing I want you to see this morning as we get a glimpse of the glory of God is seen in, and I'm going to not have you write that down because obviously my my outline's wrong here. It isn't that we're going to see it in his purity, but write down that, I want you to write this in your line there. I want you to write down the word look. Okay, I'm not sure how we got that, but uh, we're going to go with what I have, okay? And that is the word look. The first thing I want you to do is Jesus sends his disciples with him on a field trip. And I remember going on a field trip, especially to museums, and they would give you a, um, a little folder, uh, and they would say, okay, class, as you're on your field trip, I want you to do three things. And these are the three things that I want you to write down. I want you to look, I want you to listen, and I want you to learn. To look to listen, and to learn. Now notice what we see first as we look. It says, he led them up to a high mountain, and Jesus was transfigured before them. we got to stop there and ask the question, what does this word transfigured mean? The Greek word there literally is the word metamorpho. Now we get the word we get the word change from that. I'm just kidding. No, we get the word metamorphosis from that. It means to change into another form, to transform, to transfigure. Now, the reason why I bring this up is we get this idea that simply what the disciples saw on that mountain was rainbow bright Jesus. Just kind of, you know, a little brighter, got a little glow to him, you know, putting on some of that Mary Kay stuff that just makes the, the face glow a little bit. And that's not what we see taking place. Now, we're not given much of a description, but it speaks of utter radiance. It speaks as if his garments are as white as snow, far greater than anything could ever bleach them into, if you will, that kind of brightness. But what we see is something changed in Jesus. It isn't simply that a spotlight was put on him, But something showed those three disciples that Jesus was not of this world. That Jesus was not simply a man, but he was the God-man. For the very first time, they would get a glimpse that Jesus was something radically different than what they had thought he was. What was taking place was the glory of Almighty God that was on Jesus Christ that had been concealed. you got to understand something. Jesus would have a transfiguration take place once before this. And the time before it was at Bethlehem, when Jesus would put himself into flesh. He would be transfigured. He would, if you will, metamorphosize into uh, a little baby. And what would happen now? As a grown man, he would literally, and I don't mean to be gross about this, but he would literally pull the skin back. Now, does that mean that, you know, he said, all right, guys, you want to see me and and did some horror flick thing? We don't know. But whatever it was, Peter tells us they were utterly terrified. Can I tell you that the Jesus that we know and worship isn't very much of a terrifying figure? In the last century, we have spent more time, and and I think it's right because we hear about it, that Jesus is our friend. Oh, we like to walk and talk with Jesus, and he's comfortable, and, and it's easy to be casual with Jesus. This is not the Jesus that the disciples saw at the transfiguration. The Jesus that they would see at the transfiguration, in, in, in some ways, freaked them out. And it freaked them out because it showed that Jesus wasn't just like us in all ways, but he was God. And I might add that in John's dealing with Jesus, the apostle John would write, or the scripture would say that he reclined at the breast of Jesus on the day of the Last Supper. But that same Jesus and that same John would have another encounter in the book of Revelation where the glorified Jesus would stand before John And what would John do? John wouldn't recline at the breast of Jesus. John would hit the deck. And he would say, I can't look at you. And he would be utterly frightened. I might add this morning that we need to be a people who fear not just God our Father, but we must fear Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean we need to be afraid of him, but we need to revere him. He is more than simply just a man that we hug and love. He is God the one we should fear. 
Now it says that then Jesus is joined as they look at Jesus, they see Jesus in all his glory, and then after that we see now not just Jesus, but now two other individuals that come into the midst. Amidst all of the glory now stands three, and it's none other than Moses and Elijah. Now the question was, in small groups, how do we know that it was Moses and Elijah? The answer is they wore t-shirts that had their names on it. Okay, so write that down and it'll be a part of our statement of faith, the t-shirt movement. No, we don't know how they knew, probably because of the conversation that would ensue between Jesus and these two prophets. The disciples no doubt knew who they were, and they started having a discussion with Jesus. I just will add, because some have asked, well, what were they talking about? Luke says that they were talking about the impending passion of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. What a conversation to be a part of. I was watching a biography not too long ago on the conference at Yalta. That was the conference with Joseph Stalin, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill. And there's a picture of the three of these elder statesmen sitting, planning the uh, end of World War II and what the world would look like. And I remember remarking to myself, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. That doesn't hold a candle to being a part of what the disciples were to hear Jesus talking with the great legends of the faith, Moses and Elijah. Now, why would Moses and Elijah be there? And I just, I don't want to scare you. My first point's my longest, and we're going to hit the, hit the tarmac really fast with the third point, so stick with me. But why would God pick these two men? Most scholars believe that the reason why he picks these two men is that Moses and Elijah are the, uh, are the picture children, if you will, of the law and the prophets, and that Jesus had fulfilled in his life all that the law and the prophets had written concerning him. But I think there's a second reason that I think is important for us to know. I think that we see within that a reminder to us today. There is two ways that we will see the glory of God and the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The first one was seen by Moses. Moses died. And what we need to understand is the first way that we can see the glory of Jesus Christ is that we will die a physical death. And in doing so, Paul says that absent from the body, present with the Lord, we will see Christ in his glory. But that's not true of Elijah. Elijah would not taste physical death, but he would be caught up. The second way I believe that we will taste and see the glory of Jesus Christ is first, physical death, and the second one, like Moses, that we may be caught up to be with him in the air. And so we see this dichotomy of either dying, ends up in a good result, or waiting until the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and being caught up, and there be a good result. At the end of it all, every man, woman, and child who has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ will see the glory of Almighty Christ because of what they're a part of here on earth. Now, what a view. What an experience. What an encounter. And it's simply put, we need to spend some time looking at this. Now, I want you to notice for a moment and remember a passage that comes to mind. The only other person that in the scriptures that seems to have this type of experience is the prophet Isaiah. When it says in Isaiah chapter 6 that in a vision, the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. Now, some will say, well, that's great that these guys experienced this incredible thing, but what about me? I need to see the glory of the Lord. I need to be a part of that. And how do I get a glimpse of the glory of God? And I would say, look around. We are told that the glory of God is seen in creation. Though it may be veiled, we see the handiwork of our Lord all through the things of this world and this universe. But the scriptures talk about two other places that we can see and partake in the glory. John chapter 17, verse 22 says, And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. You want to see the glory of Christ? Then be unified, 
brother and sister, hand in hand, in unity, worshiping and praising and serving our God. And it's there that we'll get a glimpse of God's glory. We get a glimpse of, of Christ's glory, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, when we are transformed to be more like Christ. But we all, Paul says, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. When we are being transformed, we are a mirror of that glory that Jesus Christ showed his disciples is being seen in us. And we need to live that out. But to be able to do that, we've got to look for those opportunities to be transformed, to be unified, to look at the world of creation around us. The next thing that we need to do is listen. We need to listen. So look and listen. In verse 5, it tells us that as Jesus and Elijah and Moses are there, Peter has to talk. Now there are some people that are smart enough in a moment where nothing needs to be said that someone will obviously say something and Peter's the guy. Now it says that he doesn't know what to say and how many people do you know that have nothing to say but still are talking? This is Peter. And Peter, it says he's terrified, didn't know what to say, so what do you do? You open your mouth and say something. And Peter says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make you three, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, and they were terrified. So Peter sees this image, this glorious image. He sees Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, and he gets this awesome idea, this harebrained idea. Hey, I got an idea. Let's build our headquarters of the Jesus ministry right here on the mountain. And we will build an office for each of the big three. One for you, Moses, one for you, Jesus, and one for you, Elijah. Man, this is great. Let's just hang here. I like how he says, it is good for us to be here. This is good. This is good times. This is good. As if a kid looking down Main Street at Disney World, this is awesome. Let's just live here, Mom and Dad. Well, that's absurd. You can't live in Disney World. And it's absurd to think that you could just hang out on a mountain for the rest of your time. And this is what Peter is saying. And notice what takes place. We see God speak. A cloud envelops them. And we see a rebuke to Peter. Here, Peter's wanting to put up tents. And in doing so, it shows Peter's thinking with regards to Jesus. What Peter is doing in saying, I want a tent for Elijah, a tent for Moses, and a tent for Jesus, is he's putting all three of them on the same level. You know how dangerous that is? And God isn't going to stand for that. And what Peter is saying is, hey, Jesus, you're with your buddies. You, as one of the prophets, just like the rest of the prophets, what happened to that declaration that Peter had just a couple uh, sections ago of Scripture? You are the Christ. The son of the living God. Peter's saying, hey, Elijah and Moses are pretty cool. And if you're hanging with them, man, let's build some tents for each of you guys. And he puts them on equal footing. And God says, no way, Peter. This is my son. This is my son. As great as Moses and Elijah are, Jesus is far greater. He is infinitely greater. Can I tell you that the world longs to do what Peter did, and that is put Jesus as one among many on the same level? Hey, you can worship Jesus. Just make sure he's there with Muhammad. Just make sure he's there with the teachings of the Hindu faith. Just make sure he's there with Confucius and, and the teachings of Buddha. Just make As long as he's there, the world's okay with it. But it's when we say, Jesus, no. He's not one of many. He's the one and only. And this is what Peter misses out on. He has no partners. He is by himself. Now, there's a reminder. There's a rebuke to Peter, now a reminder. He says, listen to him. This is my son. Now listen to him. Peter, James, and John. Things are going to get hot in this world. You're going to have to follow Christ. It's going to get tough. And as a result of that, you need to start listening. And this involves, first of all, being attentive. You need to listen. Noah is learning how to watch football. And during one of the last football games, he just kept talking. He was all excited. Did you see that hit? Did you see that? And he would ask all these questions. And finally, I said to Noah, Noah, just listen to what they're saying. 
You'll learn the game. Far too many of us are not attentive to what Jesus is articulating to us, what he's wanting to share. We need to listen. We need to be ready to listen. The scripture says we are to be uh, quick to listen and slow to speak. If you need help with that, you have twice as many ears as you do mouth. So you should be listening twice as much as you should be talking. Then there's an activity. We are told in the book of James that listening isn't just hearing, but it's doing what we are told. Now, there's an assignment given to the disciples. The assignment is, is don't say anything to anyone until after the resurrection. Have you ever had a secret that you've had to hold on to? Talk about the mother of all secrets. Hey, guys, uh, by the way, what did you do up on the mountain? Nothing. What'd you see? I and mean, we saw some bright light, you know, up there. What was going on? You guys shooting off fireworks? Uh-huh. Yeah, and I don't want to say that because that would make them lying. They didn't lie, okay? But we know that they didn't say anything. And we, too, need to be attentive, and we need to live out. We are to be doers of the word, not just simply hearers, James tells us. Notice it involves learning. Once we've looked, we've listened, now we need to learn. We're told after the transfiguration, everything goes back to normal. And on their way down from the mountain, they still don't seem to understand, and they've got questions and the thing that I love about this is Jesus doesn't rebuke him for the questions. He answers the questions. I'm reminded of James chapter 1. This is when we lack wisdom, we should go to God who gives without finding fault. And they say, hey, we don't understand all of this. I thought Elijah was supposed to come first, and this is the first we've seen of Elijah. And Jesus begins to say the fulfillment of Elijah was in John the Baptist. And what they did to John the Baptist, they did whatever they wanted, meaning they killed him. They killed him because he was the forerunner of what I was going to do. And they begin to ask questions, and Jesus begins to articulate it. Now it's there after they look, and after they listen, and after they learn from this incredible experience that Mark leaves in a proverbial glow of an incredible encounter, and he moves on to another situation. Just done, let's move on. They walk down the hill, Mark says, and we are drawn into a completely different contrast. And it's from getting a glimpse of God's glory that we are then able to believe in his capability. Now what takes place, and I don't have a lot of time, but let's, let's focus on this for a couple moments. After coming down from the mountain, they meet up with the other nine disciples. And they find out, the text says, that they're embroiled in this argument with the scribes. Why would they be having an argument? And the argument involves a disciple's inability to deal with a demon-possessed child. Their inability to set this boy free would shine a bad light on their master, Jesus, and would open Jesus to accusation of lacking power just as his disciples did. And here Jesus shows us he's able to accomplish what we can't. We see his capability. Now let's look at the situation. First of all, we see Jesus is capable, even though we aren't, of handling the hardest situations. Handling the hardest of situations. Notice verses 17 and 18a. What's the problem that they face? It says that a man comes. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whatever, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast them out, and they were not able. What a situation. Now, i got to be honest with you. When I read this passage, I was gripped at the heart of this young boy and his family. And I began to picture in my mind, what would I do if I saw one of my boys playing and enjoying life, and then all of a sudden hitting the floor, thrashing about, foaming at the mouth, and there's no answer for it. Think about the, the emotional roller coaster you would be on. The kid could never be by himself. We know that there would be a societal, if you will, uh, difficulty because who would want to ever play with that kid? I mean, think about it for a moment. Your neighbor kid is a kid that finds himself thrashing about, foaming at the mouth. Yeah, go play matchbox cars with him, son. You're not going to do that. So this kid is isolated. This family is known as the kid, the family that has the kid with all the issues. And then to boot, there's a physical, if you will, issue, and that is that this child literally will throw himself into water or into um, fire to, to end his life, to destroy himself. And we learn that all of this physical and emotional pain and suffering comes from a spiritual issue. He is filled with a demon, a mute and dumb, or a dumb and deaf spirit. 
And as a result of that, the life is very difficult for these people. Put yourself in that situation. The family life would never be normal. The struggles, the immense trials and tribulations you would face. And then to watch your child endure that pain. Notice what takes place. Jesus hears our most heartfelt pleas. Verse 18b says that Jesus begins to interact with this man. He says in verse 20 and 22, they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. I want you to notice that in the worst situations, Jesus is dealing with the problems, not the symptoms. The child is thrashing about on the ground, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus is having a conversation with the father. Have you noticed that we spend a lot of time on the symptoms of issues and not the root problems themselves? And Jesus says, let the boy do what he's doing. We'll address that in a moment. Let's have a conversation. How long has this been going on? Again, Jesus knows how long it is, but he's using it as an opportunity to show the scribes how long this has taken place. This isn't something that just happened out of nowhere. It's been going on for a while. It says since childhood. And so what takes place is the scribes are all over the disciples. They couldn't change him. They couldn't make him any better. I can envision the disciples being that little boy who's in the Darth Vader costume in that Super Bowl commercial from a year ago, going and trying to use the force to change everything, and, and nothing moves. The dog won't do anything, and the milk glass won't move. I could see the disciples saying, all right, here we go. And then one saying, get out of the way, I'll do it, and nothing happening. And then people laughing at them. And Jesus says, hey, tell me what's going on. We're going to fix this. We're going to address this. And it says that the man brings up this plea. If you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What this says is the man's at the end of his rope. And some of you this morning are at the end of your rope. And you're pleading, Lord, just do anything. Anything. If you can do anything, just do it. And Jesus says, hey, to be able to do this, I'm going to need you to believe. Well, that's easier said than done. The man's looking at his situation. He's looking at his problems. And instead of looking at the person of Christ, I think it's reminiscent of this man. The same thing is true of Peter when he's walking on the water. Jesus says, I want you to look at me. And every time Jesus, or, uh, Peter would look at Jesus, he was okay. But when he looked at the waves, what happened to him? He would begin to sink. And I think what we do, and I think what this man was doing, is he wanted to look at Jesus, and he wanted Jesus, I want to believe, but then he would hear the grunts, and he would see his son convulsing, and then his eyes would go there and go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? What? Oh man, this is it, he's going to finally end his life, it's going to be over. And Jesus says, no, keep your eyes on me, don't worry about that, stay focused in on me, let's, let's lock in here. And the guy says, I I'm struggling. Notice the next thing that we see. And that is that Jesus helps increase our honest faith. When Jesus says, hey, 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 let's focus in on the problem, not the symptoms, not the struggles that you're dealing with. Let's focus here. Look at me. Keep your eyes on me. The guy says, I want to believe. But he says, help my unbelief. We as people want to believe. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to believe and i got to tell you, it's easy on a Sunday morning to believe. It's hard when the medical report comes. It's hard when the wayward child is running away from home. It's hard when the marriage is in ruins. It's hard to believe in those moments when our world is falling apart. And I love what this guy says. He says, Jesus, I want to believe. I want to keep my eyes on you. But don't you see the chaos around me? Don't you see what's taking place? And what Jesus says is, I want you to try. I want you to try real hard. And, and, and as you're doing that, I'm here. It is the proverbial spotter of a weightlifter. Come on, push that weight up. I'm here. I'm not going to let it crush you. But I want you to really try. What Jesus wants us to do is to use all our strength and all our might by faith to believe so that we can grow in our faith, but he's not going to let us just stay there, just, I, I can't do it, Jesus. He's going to help lift the bar for us. He's going to spot us and make sure we don't harm ourselves. And this is what this guy is called to do. I want you to believe. And in your time of weakness, I am there. Notice there's a healing to our most painful hurts. After this discussion with the Father, Jesus would call the demon out. He would command the demon never to come back. 
And the result is frightening. It says that the boy shrieked, he convulsed, and he goes limp, and he looks dead. And the most thought that he was dead. Wow, this, he's dead. It's over. And yet I want you to notice that Mark doesn't record anything of any murmuring of the father. You killed my son. What, what happened? Jesus, why didn't you do it? And I think what transpired was, and this is a bit of speculation, that Jesus, or um, that, that the individual had put his faith in Jesus and whatever Jesus said to happen, whatever would occur, he was going to put his faith in Jesus to go the whole way. And it says that Jesus does that. He lifts the child from the ground and the boy is made whole. Now, I don't have a lot of time. And I apologize because I've gone longer than I need to. But let me, let me just close with these thoughts here. We have two situations. One glorious, the other one pretty heartbreaking. And in the glorious moment, the mountaintop experience and the valley experience, I want you to know one thing. Jesus is Lord. Amen? When we see him high and lifted up, we praise him. We give him glory. We stand there in awe of him. But let's not forget, let's not forget that we have seen Christ high and lifted up. That when the valley comes, we remember what we've been a part of. We remember seeing the glory. And to be able to do that, it means we have to embrace his strategy. And give me two minutes and we'll close this thing up. What is the application from all of this? From these two stories, from Jesus transfiguring himself on the mountain to Jesus driving out a demon-possessed child, here is it. Jesus is Lord. That's number, that's number one we have to remember. And if Jesus is Lord, then it's going to change the way we believe. It's going to change the way we believe. Verse 19, Jesus is upset with the people. He says, you faithless generation. Can Jesus say that of us this morning? We've seen God move in our lives. Can Jesus say you are a faith-filled individual? That when he calls you to something, you are willing and able to go and do it. That you're willing to obey, you're willing to listen, you're willing to learn the hard things to embrace the life of faith that God has given you. It starts with a heart of faith. And the disciples in us have no, other reason, no reason not to believe. We've seen Christ's work in our life. We've been impacted by how he has touched our lives. And now he calls us even in the heights and in the depths of our lives to believe and to be faithful to him. Can you say that this morning of your life? Secondly, it should change the way we pray. Verse 29 gives us every reason to have prayer in a church. That he says to them, this kind of demon cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Prayer is the key. And Jesus is telling us that. And when we begin to get a glimpse of Jesus Christ on the mountain, when the valleys come, the first thing, the first thing, the first thing that we should do is get on our knees. And we need to pray. We need to say, Lord, I'm in a valley right now, but I remember seeing you high and lifted up. I remember seeing you radiant, and so I need to tap into that. I need to see that, and so I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to pray. Far too many of us pray without thinking about the radiance of God on that mountaintop. And we miss out on that, and we miss out on the power that prayer has because we're praying to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The final thing that we see involves our hope or hoping. This passage reminds us that we have much to hope for. In our world of pain and trouble, Jesus is able to accomplish the impossible. Notice what he says in the text uh, here. Uh, verse, uh, let's see here. Uh, verse 23. And Jesus said to them, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God can fix your marriage? Do you believe God can bring that child back home? Do you think God can address the financial struggles that you have? Do you think God can address the sins that we've all sinned, that he can cover them and make them as white as snow? When we begin to rely on that and trust on that, God becomes the one who is glorious. He becomes the one who is sitting on his throne in heaven. And I want to remind you that even though the world beats us up, 
And even though the world says we're a bunch of losers, one day Jesus will be sitting on his throne and every knee will come before him and they will bow and they will say glory to God in heaven. And the thing I want you to remind you of this week is something I learned in the seats, and I'll close with this, of a basketball game. One time we were at a basketball game, and I remember watching the kids at our local high school, and the one side of the fans, uh, the opponents, were yelling and screaming how bad the Hinkley Big Rock Royals were. And I loved the response of our side. They didn't yell back, you're terrible too, we hate your guts, your cheerleaders are ugly, and your guys can't play basketball. They don't say any of that. All they did, and I love this kind of stuff, they pointed over to the wall and they said, scoreboard, scoreboard, scoreboard. And you know what? who was winning? The home team. And what we need to do in this world, brothers and sisters, because of the God we serve who has transfigured himself on our behalf, who's made himself glorious, who deals with the toughest of situations when that coworker comes or that family member comes and mocks Christ and, and does all that. We don't have to revile back. We just got to point to the scoreboard. We're victorious. Jesus is great. And one day, brother or sister, uh, whether you know it or not, you're going to bow to him. And you're going to see him glorious. And your mouth is going to articulate, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, there is there's so much here. And Lord, I wish we could address every part of it. But Lord, we're going to leave it here and we're going to leave it to your Holy Spirit. We've studied it as small groups. We've gleaned these truths. Now Lord, let us not just listen by hearing, but by doing. Let us live as if you are glorious, because you are. Let us live as if you are all-powerful, because you are. Lord, let us give you our problems. Let's give you our lack of faith because you are the one who is able to grow us and change us and to make us more like your son. And Lord, in doing so, we are told that we radiate the glory of the one and only. So Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us this week, strengthen our unbelief so that we may trust and follow you. Lord, we're gonna leave this place in just a moment. And I pray that we would be reminded of the glory you showed us on that mountain, of the glory you show us in your creation, that we would be reminded that we serve a powerful and almighty God. And that because of that, whatever you ask of us, whatever comes our way in the ways of trials and tribulations, that we know you are more than able to accomplish that which concerns us today. And Lord, we thank you for it, and that's why we praise you. That's why we sing your, your name. That's why we pray to you. And that's why we worship you. Now, Lord, lead us out of this place in a spirit of worship as we fellowship with one another, telling of your fame and your renown and encouraging one another in another work week where we will be bombarded by the world and its, and its pursuits and its desires that we would see you all the more glorious. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.